0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello,
1: Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 126 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today we are discussing mimicry. Oh, it's going to be a good one. I think so, too. Mimicry is a feature that we oft see in many organisms where one organism takes on the traits of another Mm -hmm. to benefit from the original purpose of those traits. Right. I am copying this thing because it behooves me to do so. Yes. So this is different than we just ended up looking similar for similar reasons. Right. That's Convergence, Mm -hmm. episode 70. Which we will discuss in this episode, the... Ins and outs of that, but this is I am looking like someone else or acting or smelling like someone else to trick someone. Right. There's (laughs) deceit in mimicry basically in all cases. So we will go through exactly what that means and the variety of it. And then what types of mimicry do we see in the fossil record and how might it evolve in the just ridiculously diverse list of examples.
0: Very cool. This is going to be an episode full of neat examples of mimicry.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm sure. It gets so weird and crazy. It's going to be a lot of fun to dive into some of those truly bizarre and unexpected forms of copy.
0: Oh, man. I wonder if your favorite example, dear listener, will be in this episode.
1: I, I, I I, I say I hope so, but also like... Probably very, not. Very likely, probably <laughs> There's not. There's so many examples.
0: <laughs> hey, maybe your, I bet Will's favorite example is going to be in this.
1: <laughs> now we're talking about it because mimicry is awesome, but also because, as always, it was requested. This topic was requested by Scott, Jamie,
0: and Andreas. Well, I hope their favorite example of mimicry is in this episode. Oh, now the pressure's on. <laughs> <laughs> we will see. <laughs> Thanks for that request.
1: And before we get into the episode proper, some quick announcements. As is usually our first announcement, we have a Patreon. Sure do. On which you can get lots of bonus goodies like bonus news and access to us and the ability to ask us questions that we answer here on the podcast. But also, at certain levels, we will shout your name out when you join. Like
0: this, welcome to our new patrons, Brandon and Jacob. Thanks for joining us, new patrons. Thank you so much. And thanks, of course, to all of our patrons who help support the podcast and this science education endeavor we are doing. Absolutely.
1: One of the bonus things you also get in Patreon is a fairly new bonus thing that we did last
0: month, which was a patron live chat. Yeah, we did a live stream that patrons could join and we had some chit chat. We answered questions. We made some special announcements. Yeah. And we're excited to do more live streams like that. Yes, we have another one. We are planning for another one early December. So keep your eyes out for notifications. And hey, if you missed the last one, you can still go to the link and watch the recording.
1: Absolutely. But speaking of ways to get in touch with us and
0: to interact, we have a mailbox. Physical one. A physical one. that Not is Not our uh, email mailbox at common descent podcast at gmail.com, but a new <laughs> physical mailbox for snail mail. Which is still relatively new to us. And we got a bit of fan mail. We did very recently. So thanks to Isaac for sending us a great card. Yeah, we appreciated that. Yeah. If you want to send us physical mail, check for the address in the episode description. And if you're looking for a different, different way to (laughs) share your thoughts. A special
1: once a year way. (laughs) We are reaching the end of 2021, which means our end of the year Q&A is around the corner.
0: It sure is. So if you're not familiar, the end of the year Q&A, we end each year by doing a big old Q&A where people can submit any questions they want. It begins with a form. That any listeners can use to submit questions for the Q&A. The form will go up November 15th, which, if I have my dates right, is the day after this episode comes out. So wait 24 hours (laughs) from hearing this. If you're one of those people, who gets in (laughs) right when it comes out. November 15th, the form will go up. It will be live for a month. Mm -hmm. You will have one month to submit us questions for the end of the year Q&A. And then we will marathon through them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) More details to come. And with that, we can wrap up our announcements and move on to the news section. Every episode, we like to gather up some recent articles of science news, paleontology, geoscience, evolutionary science.
0: It keeps us all up to date together. And to start us off with the newses, David, what you got? Well, here's a group of life we don't often talk about on the podcast. I've got news about bryozoans. Woo! Yeah, so it is rare. If you are a fan of marine invertebrates or paleozoic fossils, you may be excited to hear we'll be talking about bryozoans. I'll explain what that is in a moment as we move into this news about the earliest known bryozoans. Cool. This is research by Zhiliang Zhang et al. in the journal Nature, and we will link to an article in The Conversation written by two of the paper authors, Glenn Brock and Luke Strotz. Bryozoans are a group of animals still around today. They are sometimes called moss animals or ectoprocts. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) They are aquatic invertebrates. They are filter feeders. Sort of like coral, they live in colonies of tiny individuals. They have mouths with little tentacles that they use to get stuff out of the water for filter feeding. They come in many shapes. There are encrusting bryozoans. There are branching bryozoans. Uh, The article even referred to jelly-like mounds. So they are a diverse group of colonial, skeletonized invertebrates. Kind of like corals and sponges do very similar things. Their calcium carbonate exoskeletons means that bryozoans make very good fossils. In fact, according to the Conversation article, there are around 15,000 known fossil species of bryozoans. Wow. So this puts them in, like, with brachiopods and things like that, where we just have tons of them in the fossil record. As many as you can want. However, one of the interesting things about the history of bryozoans is that they are unusual among major groups. Bryzo is a phylum of animals that are not present in the Cambrian. Huh. So we've talked about this on and on ever since episode nine. Basically, every major group of animals on the planet today showed up in the Cambrian, during the early Cambrian, across what the event known as the Cambrian Explosion, bryozoans have notably been absent from that. The earliest known bryozoans are from the early Ordovician period, after the Cambrian. But at that point, they are very diverse. The article, uh, the paper cited that there are six major orders of bryozoans recognized in the Ordovician, which has led scientists to suspect that they did evolve in the Cambrian, we just haven't found them yet. Yeah, we're just missing that record so far. They, they had time to originate and diversify by the Ordovician, probably showed up earlier. And maybe they were soft-bodied during mm. the Cambrian, which would make them harder to find. So far absent, until now. This paper re-examines a previously known fossil, a honeycomb-like fossil, known as Protomilician gatehousei, first described in 1993 from a specimen from southern Australia, and then in 2018, much more recently, a very similar specimen was discovered in China. So two places that this organism has been found. This study takes a new look at th- these fossils with micro-CT scanning, allowing them to get a s- external and internal scan at very, very fine detail to look inside and out and get a sense of the structure of the critter. And wouldn't you know it, what they found is that the structure of this creature is consistent with bryozoans. In fact, they put the features into a phylogenetic analysis, which suggested that it is, in fact, an early bryozoan. Awesome. They describe that the, this fossil includes mul- different features that are seen in multiple other bryozoan groups. So this, the, these features seem to have originated earlier before they diversified into these other groups. And that this these fossils don't have quite the same robust skeleton that we see in living bryozoans. So they looked different from the bryozoans we are more familiar with. This, of course, is exciting for a number of reasons. First and foremost, bryozoans in the Cambrian period. Finally. Fine. Well, yeah, well, it's been this sort of gap. Yeah. That we've been, yeah we, shouldn't they be there?
1: Yeah, well, it's like, due to their diversity... It makes sense. And, like,
0: come on, that's what the Cambrian was all about. Everyone else. Well, because it raised that big question. If you didn't show up during the Cambrian explosion, why not? Yeah, exactly. Why was the wait? This find pushes back the earliest known occurrence of bryozoans by about 35 million years. From the early Ordovician into the Cambrian. This also, the paper notes, lines up with genetic estimates for the origins of bryozoans. So it sounds like for a while, DNA molecular clock estimates have suggested they originated in the early Cambrian and then diversified in the Ordovician. Up until now, the fossils only came from Ordovician or later. This helps narrow the, the difference.
1: Oh, it's so satisfying. Isn't when, that
0: great? When a fossil falls within a molecular <laughs> clock estimate. And finally, uh, this was a note, I think this was in the article, the conversation article. Also, uh, evidence of colonial living originating during the Cambrian Explosion. So we've talked, uh, when we've discussed the Cambrian Explosion in the past, we've talked about how it's not only a diversification of forms of life, but styles of life. Yes, living habits. Habits of life. Here are colonial organisms already having originated uh, in the Cambrian. Very cool. This is such
1: a, a, a neat find, not only for the gaps it fills, but also... Because it's it's yet another member of the Cambrian Explosion. Right. <laughs> like, yet one more stack onto the pile. Yes. Of of groups and lifestyles that originated here. Yep, That's so awesome. And I, I as always, when something like this is found, I'm excited because maybe now this will give us hints of, hey, actually look for stuff that's shaped like this. Yes. Keep an eye out. It might actually be a bryozoan.
0: Yeah. And they may have been even
1: more diverse. Yes. Back
0: during the Cambrian.
1: And so we might be able to retroactively discover more in collections that were looked over because they didn't look like what we were expecting. Yeah. Now that we've scanned this one, we we could have a new technique for finding new ones.
0: And this is another one of those fun bits of uh, new studies that utilizes a new technology, or at least a newly available technology for paleontologists, to add on to an old discovery.
1: Yeah, now that we can Iron Man fossils, yep. you know, 3D Jarvis it around, we can discover what a bright you know, that it's a Bryozoan,
0: no problem. Yeah. Well if you like that news, just wait till my second news. Oh. But first,
1: Will <laughs> My first news is not about uh the origin of colonial living and blah 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you said. It is about tusks. Okay, hey, we did a whole episode about tusks. We sure did, and this is about early tusk evolution and why we see tusks in the groups we see them in today, potentially.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: Because I know people are waiting. Episode 107. (laughs) (laughs) This is research by Megan Whitney et al. in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, and the article we'll be linked to is by Alan Boyle in GeekWire. So tusks, as mentioned there, but also... The definition used in this study, because as we mentioned, tusks are not a really well-defined structure.
0: Yeah, that's how we started off that episode. Yep.
1: <laughs> that tusks generally refer to specialized teeth that come out the mouth. Right. Walruses, warthogs, yeah. et All those elongated toothy-get people. And cetera. Here, the definition they're using for tusks is ever-growing incisors or canines. Mm-hmm that extend out past the mouth and whose surface is made out of soft dentin rather than hard enamel. Gotcha. Which... Uh, uh, Which makes them different from regular teeth. Yep. And excludes rodent teeth that might extend outside the mouth. Oh, yeah. Which answers our
0: question in that
1: episode about whether mole rats
0: have tusks. Yes. So this definition says mole rats do not have tusks. Exactly. Sorry, mole rats. (laughs)
1: Better luck next time. Uh... With the next definition. (laughs) Now, this is something these, you know, even under this description, tusks have evolved multiple times within modern day mammals. Uh, They're all over the place, but are notably absent from the other vertebrate groups that we have around today. Right. We don't have tusked reptiles or amphibians or birds. And so this has raised the idea that there may be something specific to mammals that has allowed this. Like, maybe that's a mammal feature for more than a reason that we're good at teeth. You know, maybe there's something about tusks and mammals that has made it a mammal thing. Interesting.
0: There are, are there no tusked fish under this definition? Uh, no, I don't okay. think so. Because I didn't mention fish. Fa- there are some people out there who are like, yeah, you left fish off your vertebrates list. Yep. I did that on purpose because I was like, oh man, I bet there's a tusked fish right? out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, think, I don't think there's anything that would count that way. Okay, they for the lose... purposes of this news, mammals. They did not list any, and I don't know of any, so... Absolutely not. Great. I'm sure you also explained this in episode 107. Yes. And I've forgotten. <laughs> this research wanted to look at the origin of tusks. So they went to look at dicynodonts. Ooh. dicynodonts are thrapsids and are a group that were prominent in the Permian to Triassic. So 270 to
0: like 200 million years ago. They are part of that group of pre-mammal... Animals that are on the line towards mammals, but not actually mammals. Episode 47. Cousins
1: of our ancestors. These were the earliest group to have tusks. By this definition, but also just generally speaking when we see tusk-shaped teeth. And, once again, according to this uh, paper, the only non-mammalian synapsid to get tusks. Okay. So, So outside of mammals. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So... They took a look at their teeth, specifically 19 dicynodont tusks, which uh, include 10 different species, and did histology, so thin slices under a microscope to look at the structure, the composition of the tusk, how it attached to the tissues around it, and how it would have been developed and grown, uh, replaced. They found a variety... Of features among the tusks unsurprisingly some of which would not count as tusks under this definition they were actually enamel covered cool right they also found evidence for a variety of developmental what they call pathways you know ways they developed adult tusk dentition which suggests that the dicynodont tusk was actually developed multiple times convergently cool right <laughs> like <laughs> the earliest tusks and they didn't even do it once They did it multiple times, but they only see the ever-growing feature in the more derived members. So, like, the fully tusk-like tusks really only show up in the more derived, you know, further down the line dysanodonts. And they were able to find a couple of features which seems to be potentially the prerequisites, the pre-adaptations that allowed for these tusk-like adaptations, these true tusks. First, evolution of significantly reduced tooth replacement. So okay. So not replacing your tooth regularly and all the time like reptiles do.
0: Right. More like what we do with very limited tooth replacement. Yeah,
1: we got two sets and then we're done. And permanent soft tissue attachment to the tusk. And so these features seem to be predictors for the eventual or the potential evolution of ever growing true tusks. Right.
0: If those things are in place, you can evo- you can possibly evolve tusks. Yeah, or you're good you're well set up for it potentially. Right. Things get
1: interesting when it's pointed out that these features are features of the teeth of crown group mammals, which could be why we only see true ever
0: growing tusks in mammals. Oh, so all modern mammals yeah, share these features. Oh, so maybe, yeah, so, yeah, like you said, maybe that's why mammals are the ones who all over the place have tusks.
1: Yeah, if this if these are the attributes you typically need or we typically see before tusks happen, and mammals, as a rule,
0: have those features. Yeah. True mammals ancestrally yes. are ready for tusks. Exactly. Oh, cool.
1: They also noticed that uh, when they were looking at all the Dicinodonts that the earlier members tended to have large teeth not tusks and they noted that the transition from tooth to tusk is a trade-off because enameled cover teeth are stronger but harder to repair and so if you're using it as a tool like tusks typically are the dentin is
0: more easy to bounce back from wear and tear right which is more likely if you're smashing it into trees or other tusks
1: yep and so that's potentially one of the reasons you know one of the uh evolutionary pressures for going from just having big teeth to having tusks is and that specifically that soft dentin covered tusk
0: yeah i love it's so common in paleontology that we talk about the origin of a thing yes right the origin of this group or the origin of this one feature but it's so cool to examine the origins of a feature that has shown up many many times and say what is common yeah In the origin of this feature, why does it show up where it does? That's very cool to have insights into. Well,
1: and it's it's fascinating to me when we do look at features like that, because sometimes you'll come in and you'll be like, all right, this is a feature that's shown up a bunch of times in different groups. And it turns out it's different. Like Mm -hmm. they're all doing it differently for different reasons. And then other times you find something like this, where actually there does seem to be a through line, which is equally as
0: fascinating. Very cool. Well, hey, if you like that story about the origin of a familiar feature, you're going to love my next news story. This is research about some Cambrian worms doing a thing you might not expect worms to do, and earlier than anyone else did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't expect worms to do this. Bill This, is, this is the foreshadowing. That's right. They were going, <laughs> anyway, this was the, the Cambrian IRS going from <laughs> reef to reef. This is research by Xiaoyu Yang et al. in Current Biology, and we will link to an article in Gizmodo by Jake Bueller. As we mentioned in the last news that I talked about, Cambrian Explosion was a time period across the Cambrian period over many millions of years during which we see rapid diversification, the origins of many new body forms, and lifestyles and ecological roles, just a huge eruption of ecosystem ingredients. I do remember you mentioning that. In passing, this study examines four fossils of Cambrian worms doing something unusual. These fossils were found in the Guanshan biota in southern China. The worms themselves belong to a group called Priapulids, which are a group of unsegmented marine worms. So, like, if you think of an earthworm that is a segmented worm, Uh, these are unsegmented. They are also known by the common name penis worms. Because... Google a picture of the Priapulid worms, and you'll see why. <laughs> these days, uh, species of this worm generally live in the sediment, burrowing in the sediment, uh, either eating detritus or hunting small invertebrates. In the past, they, they go all the way back to the Cambrian, and there are there, there's a wide diversity of them in the fossil record. Uh, one of these articles, I think maybe the Gizmodo article, also referenced like large predator species within this group. So they have been diverse in the past. The fossils in this study uh, are identified as possibly belonging to a known genus named Eczema priopulis. The fossils are found inside the cone-shaped shells of different animals known as hyoliths. Hyoliths are, well, they were, they were extinct. They were, they were just Paleozoic. They have been extinct since the Permian. They are relatives of brachiopods, which are kind of like clams and other bivalves. So these are animals that built a shell around themselves, often a funnel-shaped shell. These worms are found inside these shells. Now, the paper does consider possible explanations. For example, it could be that these worms are using these shells as temporary shelters while molting or laying eggs, but based on a number of features of the fossils, including the similarity in the size between each worm and the shell it is, uh, in, they suspect that what we're seeing is that these worms are hermiting. Yes, I was, I was, <laughs> I've been sitting on hermit worms. <laughs> yes, these appear to be hermit worms, possibly having carefully selected their shell. Now, hermiting, which I don't know if that is a, technical term that's the term that was used i'm, I'm gonna a write up paper <laughs> i think the paper did use that term yes is adopting the way they put it is adopting another organism's exoskeleton you <laughs> didn't have to
1: make it creepy just in for halloween season
0: <laughs> no. uh the most famous example of course these days is hermit crabs yeah hermit crabs do not make those shells that they carry around they find them Those are usually snail shells, aren't they? Gastropod shells? As far as I'm aware, it's all snail shells. Right. They find them and stick them on their back for protection. Hermit crabs are not the only animals known to do this. This has evolved multiple times across uh, various groups of animals. But the fossil examples of this are Mesozoic and Cenozoic. And Priapulids, penis worms, don't do this today. We don't know of any members of this group that do this today. In fact, as I mentioned, uh, and the article makes a point to point this out, the shell creatures producing those shells don't exist anymore. (laughs) They (laughs) went extinct before the Mesozoic. So this is the first known example of these worms doing this, and by far the oldest known example. Oldest by, like, uh, uh, 200 million years or some such.
1: That's another example of adding a cool lifestyle to the cambrian yeah wow and also the the concept of hermit worms is is so
0: fa- yeah. It,
1: the implications are fascinating
0: right. now i don't actually know the article mentioned that this has evolved multiple times i don't know what the other groups are i know when you said maybe that, there are hermit worms
1: today yeah you you said that and i had a moment of who who are the other Hermit. I don't know. Uh, why aren't they speaking up? <laughs> so now I now
0: I'm going to be googling that. <laughs> now, as you mentioned, this increases our knowledge of the diversity of lifestyles in the and Cretace- the Cambrian. It also increases our understanding of the diversity of these ancient worms. But here's a fun fact: hermiting in the fossil record is thought, based on other studies, to have expanded and diversified during the Mesozoic, during Uh, an event uh, (laughs) we have talked about before known as the Mesozoic Marine Revolution. Yeah. A time where the shape of ocean ecosystems was changing, and we see a changeover in the kind of defenses that are employed by marine organisms. Hermiting is thought to have diversified in response to increasing predators in the ocean Mm -hmm. during the Mesozoic, so perhaps, the author's pose, that was also the case during the Cambrian explosion. That in addition to, you know, we've talked about during the Cambrian, we see the a lot of the earliest hard parts. Yes. True shells are showing up. And that is thought to be in part in response to increasing predation. This might be another adaptation to help offset all the... Things that are going around chomping on stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and if I remember right, that's
1: also one of the trends during the Mesozoic Marine Revolution is that we see more durophagus hard-eating predators and more hard-parted, shelled and armored prey items. Yes. And so not only would it encourage
0: you to hermit to go, hey, maybe I should get a roof over my head. Right. I haven't evolved to (laughs) build a a home. Yes. So we're going to fast track it and I'm going to steal some. Yep. But also probably the diversity of potential homes for you to steal. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If more people are making shells and then dying and leaving those shells behind. Yeah. Hermit opportunities. Yeah. The housing market is
0: booming. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Oh, it's so cool. It's a cool, it's really (laughs) a cool study. And of course, it's making the rounds abundantly because the headlines get to use the term penis worm, which they wouldn't do that. Well, (laughs) but. And yet they do. <laughs> Surely we are what, all more mature than that. What self-respecting science communication enterprise would put the word penis in the title of one of their products? Anyway, my news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, episode 53. <laughs>
1: well, uh, speaking of reproduction. All right. <laughs> you have my attention. <laughs> I have news about what seems to be two cases of
0: parthenogenesis, which is sometimes called virgin birth. Yep. Reproducing asexually without having to do the sex. In condors. Which are birds. Which are birds. Like big impressive (laughs) birds. (laughs) This is
1: research by Oliver A. Ryder et al. in the Journal of Heredity. And the article is by Mindy Weisberger in Life Science. So Parthenogenesis, uh, this is a feature, a, a type of asexual reproduction found in typically, you know, it's typically attributed to animals that could or should reproduce by mating. Right. But have the ability when
0: sans males to give birth asexually. Right. Without having to mix and match genetic material from male and female. You can just clone yourself, essentially, and create a little clone baby. Yes. Uh, it's rare in general among vertebrates, but fish and reptiles, there are a decent number of examples. Oh, yeah. There are sharks that have been known mm-hmm. to do it. There are snakes and lizards that have been known to do it. And there are other lizards where entire populations are all female, all parthenogenic. Me, 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 me. <laughs> it has also been noted in birds before this.
2: Uh, yes,
1: I have heard that. Which I wasn't aware of before reading this. Uh, there's turkeys and chickens and some
0: songbirds, uh, gotcha. where it has been noted. I had brought, I brought this up in the prep lab at the museum the other day, and I said, first time in birds, I think, and Sean, our friend Sean, said, nope, turkeys. <laughs> and I went, oh, <laughs> I did not know birds
1: did this. Yeah. So, condors. Let's back it up a sec and talk a little bit about the California condor. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction, nice <laughs> which brings us to the situation that today researchers have cataloged the DNA of all condors. oh wow, <laughs> because most condors are because of are due to their existence is due to captive breeding right so o- more than a thousand birds at this point, there is a database of the genome of all these condors. This is something that we typically do in. Conservation breeding programs. Right. If you're a zoo or an aquarium that has breeding animals, your animal has a genome ID in a database. And this is so that the people running these programs can avoid inbreeding with related individuals. Can also avoid if this individual is showing some genetically uh, uh, damaging traits, you know, they have a genetic disorder or disease. We want to cycle them out. If there's higher diversity in the genome of one individual that we don't see a lot of. We want to get them back into the game. Mm -hmm. So it's to maintain the health of the population. This also means that they will analyze genomes, genotypes every so often to go, all right, where do you sit in the standing for stud status? You know, a breeding male that we want to have make as many babies as we can for the time being. So they will analyze genotypes and during a, what sounded like a routine You know, going through and doing that, they came across two males, which had both been released uh, into the wild and had, at the point of the study, already deceased. So these are not around anymore. Mm -hmm. This is purely a (laughs) after-the-fact posthumous discovery. They found that in the genetics of those two birds, they could only identify DNA from the females that hatched them. No male sire, no male father figure... Could be identified as a donor. Cool. They initially, of course, assumed this was an error, so I mean, they naturally did it again. The results didn't change, meaning that really the only explanation is that the DNA was one hundred percent contributed by the females. I one by a mom by, and it's two different females. <laughs> so it happened
0: twice. Yes. Two different males from two different females. Each one of which just made a baby by themselves. Yep. Are you going to talk about chromosomes? Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) Because I know we have listeners who are like, wait, hang on a second. Absolutely. So. Go ahead. (laughs) Condor
1: chicks can, if born by parthenogenesis, can only be male. Right. Because while in us humans, males have the xy two different sex chromosomes heterozygous yes two different sex chromosomes our females have the xx
0: homozygous so that's the truth in us humans in mammals in birds it's the reverse males have two of the same chromosome zz females have one of each zw and during parthenogenic
1: reproduction they can only give birth to matching chromosome babies, which is just a feature of this form of asexual reproduction. And since the same chromosome gene makeup in birds is male, that means that you can only make males if you're a bird giving birth without mating.
0: Which I also guess means that these the birds couldn't do the thing that, I think they're called checkered lizards. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The population where it's all females just... continuously reproducing asexually to create an entire population. I think the males will find uh, more difficulty with that than the two females did. Uh, Yeah, agreed. Now,
1: one of the things that makes this extra weird is these two females are part of the breeding program Mm -hmm. and have given birth before to normally conceived young with males that they were living with at the time (laughs) that they've mated with multiple times before. For some reason, out of nowhere, these two
0: females just went. No, I'm just going to make a baby by myself. Fine, I'll do it myself. Yes, <laughs> but they've wor- like I'll save you the trouble. We'll cut out the middleman. <laughs> yes. So
1: we have no clue. the The researchers don't have a solution as of yet as to why those two instances the females
0: suddenly yeah yeah
1: gave birth
0: asexually. Because I know parthenogenesis is thought, well, like so many traits, is something that might emerge during times of hardship or where mm-hmm. there aren't males available.
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely species where it can be triggered somewhat artificially. Uh, like I know there are lizards where the females will engage in mating behavior, yes, to trigger parthenogenesis, so that if there is no male, they can still trigger right uh, they, impregnation,
0: acting like their mating yes
1: even though it's not really happening and it triggers the biological response so yeah we don't know why it happened especially since there doesn't seem to have been a a need for it to have happened when there was males that they've had successful matings with before present at the time how cool it's so awesome
0: this also means we had it in reptiles and birds probably amphibians I would be surprised if we I don't haven't. know of an example. So now we're just waiting to find a mammal. Yes. Yes. Reproducing asexually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's pretty neat. And with that,
1: we can wrap up our news, which means we can go into our main topic and start talking about mimicry and start talking about mimicry
0: and what exactly it is. See what I did there?
1: <laughs> I, I, I get it. yeah
0: uh, Music. Mimicry as a concept. Mimicry is as a concept. No, I won't do it.
1: <laughs> the whole episode. The whole episode. We <laughs> <laughs> should have just set up a second mic. Yep. <laughs> Go on. So mimicry is one of those interesting evolutionary and biological concepts in that the base concept of mimicry is pretty straightforward. You know, something copying something else to trick something else. Yeah. That's not
0: complicated. Yeah. I look like a leaf. I look like this other animal. Yeah. I look like X, Y, Z. But the nitty-gritty of mimicry is so nitty
1: and so gritty. (laughs) There's so many different flavors of mimicry and slightly technically different versions of things copying other things and quite a bit of evolutionary mystery and discussion as to exactly how it works and which parts of it we can agree on. And so we'll discuss... Starting off, what is mimicry? And then after the break, we'll get into all that evolutionary muck. So, as I said, mimicry, pretty easy definition just for core mimicry. When one organism evolves to have a similar phenotype, so it could look same, it could behave similar, it could smell the same as another organism for some evolutionary selective benefit, It benefits them to look like them, usually to the deception of another organism. Right. Don't eat me because you think I'm this other thing. Exactly. Now, some definitions emphasize organism to organism. Sometimes it will include inanimate objects. Okay. So depending on the definition, things that look like a rock may or may not actually count as mimicry. Cool. Or may not be grouped or sometimes are grouped but may not technically be mimicry, depending on how you define it. Because looking like your environment is getting into camouflage. getting into
0: camouflage, yeah.
1: Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about those (laughs) similar terms. There's, There's a couple that hover around mimicry when discussed, so we'll get into those. But first, let's talk about what makes a mimicry situation. So first, you have two main tasks that are included in mimicry, signalers and receivers. Signaling is anything an organism does Bright colors, noises they make, or smells that they give off, you know, chemicals that they release, that elicit a reaction in another organism. Okay. You know, things you do that causes someone else to react a certain way.
0: Sure. And then receivers are the ones receiving those signals. Right. Here are my colors, you are receiving them, and responding by wanting to mate with me or wanting to run away from me or whatever. Yes, exactly.
1: And of those, there are typically three players... In any given mimicry situation, there are situations with less and many, many, many with more, but usually you have two signalers and a receiver. One signaler is the model, the one who is being mimicked. Right. The other signaler is the mimic, who is signaling the same signals
0: as the model. Right. So to use a very classic example, if it's okay to throw out an example, model species has bright warning colors because it is toxic. Yep. Mimic species has similar bright warning colors to fool receivers into thinking it is toxic. And those fooled receivers are often called the dupe. Oh, that's awesome. Isn't that great? (gasps) I love it. The dupe is the
1: predator, the prey sometimes, Mm -hmm. that is being deceived by this mimicry. Now, these systems can be very complex. Sometimes it's just the mimic, model, and dupe. But you might have multiple mimics. You might have multiple models and mimics. You might have multiple dupes. And then there are situations where it's a one-to-one. Where I'm mimicking you to trick you.
0: Right. (laughs) I I can think of an example of that, actually. Where the model is the dupe. Oh, man. I can think of lots of examples of mimicry. Uh, As you're going through this, I'm like, oh, this and this and this. They're all snakes. Yeah, right? Buckle up.
1: (laughs) There's a a bunch of good ones with snakes. (laughs) Now, mimicry is incredibly diverse because the signals that are used can be anything from sound, smell, behavior, shape, color. All of the things that you can think about that you can perceive from an organism could be considered a signal for mimicry. And could be mimicked. Yes. Yep. And then they can be used in multiple ways. Typically, we think of mimicry as a way of defense. I'm going to trick you into thinking I'm something I'm not so that I can get away with it. Right. Right. But it, there's aggressive mimicry as well, where I am tricking you so that I can
0: get in for the kill.
1: Yeah, you know? or
0: I can get you to do something I need you to do. Yes, that is detrimental to you. Yes, for my benefit.
1: And there's also reproductive mimicry. There sure is. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to go through some of the classic and main examples of mimicry. A lot of these have names of the researchers who described them initially. Yep. So a lot of these are named after last names and some of these names you may not find on a quick google but i found these in various papers and sources some may not be used or
0: called the same thing all the time these these tend to be shuffled around or renamed or reclassified so anyone out there who can name a type of mimicry you're probably thinking of either for example malurian or batesian yes and those are are
1: the first two yep (laughs) (laughs) those are the, the first two So let's talk about some of the defensive mimicries. The first two big ones are Batesian and Malurian. Batesian is the classic example of mimicry. There is some organism with a defense, usually toxicity. Maybe they taste bad or they're dangerous. You know, they have a sting or a bite that is hazardous. And they are displaying that. They have warning colors or they make some warning display to say, don't mess with me because it'll be a bad day for you. We call this aposemitism, which is the displaying of warning behavior or colors to indicate that I am dangerous so that you don't even try to bite
0: me. Right. Think of brightly colored toxic frogs mm-hmm. or those iconic stripes on a bee or a wasp. Yeah. Or like the rattle on a rattlesnake would be one of these warnings as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Don't come over here. I am dangerous. Yes. I'll... Notice me. Yep. I want you to notice me. And recognize that I am dangerous. And learn that these colors and this
1: sound means don't mess with us so that we don't even have to use our tools. Then there is a non-dangerous, well, Mm -hmm. often called an edible (laughs) mimic. Awesome. (laughs) A non-defensed, an animal that doesn't have the toxin, that doesn't have the bite, that doesn't have the sting, that tastes good. Yep. (laughs) And they are copying that displaying threatening individual
0: it is it is a very gutsy survival strategy to say notice me and hopefully you'll buy my bluff yes that i am dangerous and the key is is that you're
1: you're relying on the fact that predators hopefully have already learned their lesson with the dangerous mimic right so that they're not going to try to test that lesson with you now this is super common among all groups of animals like there's
0: Examples of this all over king snakes and coral snakes. Coral snakes are my go to. Coral snakes are a venomous species of snake. Here in North America, we think of the famous red, yellow, black pattern, which is mimicked by many different species of snakes. Have gone, that's a great color to be. Let's do that.
1: Uh, There's also, you get acoustic BTM mimicry. There are tiger moths that are noxious, they're bad tasting, and they will emit a high frequency noise when they detect bat echolocation to say, I taste bad, avoid me. And then there are non-noxious tiger moths that evolved to do the same noise. Cool. And this was one that I I thought was super awesome. Back to snakes, because there are a lot of things that mimic snakes. Yep. Burrowing owls will hiss. And it has been thought that it is to mimic rattlesnake hissing to defend the burrow. And it seems that when prairie dogs that are wary of rattlesnakes
0: hear a burrowing owl hiss, they are just as cautious. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? Well, we also, our teaser image for this episode on the social medias was, I don't remember the name of the caterpillar.
1: There's multiple that do this. Yeah,
0: I don't remember which one it was in the picture, but it is one of those caterpillars that is shaped and patterned so that part of its body looks like the head of a snake.
1: Yep. They have these eye spots on the side of the body and then can swell part of their body to look like... A yeah. snakehead. You also do get some situations, and I didn't find many examples of this listed, uh, but it's at least a concept that you'll see discussed. Where it is kind of the reverse situation of the Batesian, where you have a more dangerous, more deadly individual mimicking a less dangerous individual. Because if your if my toxin is deadly at the first bite, then no one learns their lesson. Oh, yeah. When they bite me. So if I mimic one of the ones that you'll just think tastes bad, then hopefully you'll learn a lesson on the bad tasting one and then also avoid us, but you'll die if you bite us. So we still have that extra defense. Interesting. This is getting more into the category of Malarian mimicry, which is when you have multiple defended individuals, multiple defended organisms with they all have toxins, they all have stings, and they're mimicking each other to display the same warning signals so
0: that they're sharing the burden of teaching predators not to mess with them. If you learn your lesson with one species, now you're, you know it for all these species. Bees and wasps are
1: the go-to yep. example of that, where the fact that so many bees and so many wasps have all gone with that black, yellow, striped pattern, that is not a feature that is, because they are bees and wasps, that is a feature to display... Don't mess with us, because we'll sting you and swarm you. Yeah. And if you just learn
0: it with a yellow jacket, you'll also remember it with a bee. Yep, which explains why so many people, uh, us humans, just freak out at the black and yellow. Yep. Because, yeah, you learned your lesson once. (laughs) Well, and because it works on us, because there's also Batesian mimics, who are also (laughs) black
1: and yellow, mimicking them, but have no sting. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And it goes to show how well it works. You also get defensive mimicry in plants. A number of different kinds of mimicry, but one that was really interesting is Babilovian mimicry, which is mimicry by weeds of crop plants.
0: Oh, so a quote unquote pest plant yeah. evolves to look similar to a desirable crop plant. Yep. So that it will be harvested. and So it'll <laughs> either be
1: harvested or not seen as something to weed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which means we are the selective pressure on that one.
0: If we keep weeding out the weeds, the ones that are harder to spot get, get left behind and keep reproducing. So we are selecting for weeds that look like the thing we're trying to separate them from.
1: There have been some who point out that these plants may or may not count as legitimate mimics because it's artificial selection that was driving it. Right. But it also means that these mimics will stop existing if we stop existing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that's true. Which is bizarre. Cool. So so far, and this came up earlier, this is different from just convergent evolution. Yes. Where convergent evolution, episode 70, is when similar traits arise for similar purposes in unrelated organisms. This is I we wait you don't want to use the word intentional, mm-hmm. but the mimic evolved that way. Because of the existence of the other one. Yeah. The, not independently.
1: The uh uh resemblance is purposeful. Yeah. The not resemblance coincidental.
0: Is selected for.
1: Yes. Yeah. And one of the big things that sets mimicry apart from just pure convergent evolution is that for it to be true mimicry, there's deceit. Yes. It is they are looking like that other organism to get the benefits that other organism gets.
0: Yes. You're it's it's almost man. I don't know if this is. I'm sure someone will disagree with this wording. It's It's almost like signaling parasitism.
1: Yeah, kind of.
0: Yeah, yeah you're you're hijacking
1: their signal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And speaking of parasites, Ooh. Gilbertian mimicry is when a host or prey animal mimics its parasite or predator to try to avoid being targeted. An example of this is there are plants. Passiflora plants from Central and South America. Passion flowers. Yes, passion flowers that will have leaves with yellow spots. And it is thought that these are to mimic butterfly eggs because butterflies will often not lay their eggs where eggs are already laid to avoid competition and potential cannibalism. Huh. So if I just add some fake eggs, I might get less caterpillars on me. Oh, cool. So I'm mimicking the thing that is trying to hunt me. Yeah. Yeah. And then probably one of the weirdest forms of defensive mimicry is called auto mimicry, where you're mimicking yourself. Sure, this Sa- sounds easy, that, right? <laughs> yeah, I've <laughs> you got a mirror, you're good to go. No. This is where things like false heads
0: and gotcha. false eyes, gotcha, fall. So eye spots, mm-hmm. or like um, I'm thinking of beaded lizards, hila yep. monsters, where both sides kind of look like the head. And the idea here is that I'm mimicking a vital part of my body
1: somewhere else so that I can deflect attack or cause confusion to potentially get away during an attack.
0: Right. If a predator wants to eat me head first, because that tends to be how predators want to go, because it's safer that way, and they can't tell which side is the head, maybe I will confuse them long enough to escape into my burrow.
1: Now, I know that some of these have been questioned as to whether that's actually what's happening. Right. Or whether we just are thinking that's what it looks like. Okay. Is it actually mimicking your head, or are we just saying, look, a squat tail. It must be a fake head. Right. You know, there's not a lot of, from what I could find, research support for things like eye spots actually mimicking eyes, and maybe that's just a surprising display. Right. So this one's a little, it seemed a little fuzzy from what I got from the readings. Okay. There are, though, Other examples of automimicry where it is mimicking your own species, because if you are a species of, let's say, toxic insects, there's going to still be variation among the toxicity of the insects. Mm -hmm. And there could even be non-toxic individuals, what one paper labeled cheaters, (laughs) that are benefiting from their species, having their display warnings and being known to be toxic, but not actually having to produce toxins. That's pretty cool. So you're Batesian mimicking yourself. Yeah. <laughs> just all of your hardworking cousins, not yourself. Oh man, it sounds like something insects would do. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get into aggressive mimicry. Oh boy. Oh and man, aggressive mimicry is where it gets weird and cool. <laughs> this is anything used by predators or parasites to take advantage of the prey or host, which is now the dupe. Right. You're duping the thing you're going to take advantage of, and it's either to facilitate what you're going to do. Like, if you're a parasite and you need to trick them into taking care of your babies like a cuckoo bird, mm-hmm. then that's brood mimicry, brood parasite mimicry. Yep. Or if you're a predator that's trying to get just a little bit closer, looking like something that's not the predator that they're expecting might give you that extra couple feet before you can pounce. Mm-hmm. These come in many shapes and forms. There's a Batesian, Wallachian mimicry, which is kind of reverse Batesian. Instead of trying to look like something dangerous, you're trying to look like something benign. Right. And so you are trying to come across as something the prey shouldn't worry about. Very often this takes the form of the predators mimicking the prey. Right. I'm trying to appear to be one of your kind to either get close or draw you in right wearing the sheep's clothing exactly an oft used example of this is the bolo spider which uses the pheromones of the moths it's trying to catch mm-hmm. chemicals that are identical to those pheromones to draw in males and catch them on its bolo strand
0: oh very cool
1: you also get the what is in my opinion one of the most sinister forms <laughs> of predator mimicry which is the firefly females that will mimic other Firefly female signals yes, and draw in the males and then eat them when they land.
0: Yeah, which is like the real world version of Bugs Bunny pretending to be a pretty woman to draw in
1: the bad guy. Well, and it's because it's Fireflies, (laughs) I picture it as like we've hacked the Morse code signal of the enemy units and we're going to start sending false information. Like, it's so sinister. There's also Wicklerian... Eisnerian mimicry, this is when a predator parasite mimics an ally, a mutualistic symbiotic ally of the prey. Oh. The common form of this are cleaner fish mimics.
0: Cool.
1: I so- look like a cleaner fish so that you come up and you open your mouth for me to come up clean and then I take a chunk out <laughs> of your fin and swim away. Oh, that's so mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's the equivalent of the mover company people- you know, that's, they come in and go, oh, I, could you let us into this apartment? We're here to move their stuff. Yeah. And then just rob you blind. <laughs> Cleaned you out. Absolutely. We have the brood parasite mimics, which is often called Kirbian mimicry. And the cuckoo is the right. classic form of this. Cuckoo birds, cuckoo bees. Cuckoo bees. Yep. Uh, cuckoo birds are fun because they have multiple levels of mimicry. Cuckoo birds, the famous bird that will go into other birds' nests. Either kick out some of their eggs or just lay their egg among them. The eggs are mimicking the host bird's eggs. Yeah, it's not the bird isn't the mimic. Nope. The eggs are mimics. And then the young often will also have acoustic mimicry and make the same calls as the babies of the host. That's cool. To trigger that parent response. That's awesome. The adults do show signs of mimicry, but not of the hosts of hawks so that the the parents don't mob them when they come in to lay their <laughs> trojan horse egg oh, oh, oh man Just mimicry on mimicry on mimicry wow so it can get real complex and of course not all these are always as solidly supported right there are some i think the hawk mimicry is more recently suggested uh while the eggs is definite mm-hmm. and then I it also seemed like the Baby Calls was maybe seen in
0: some, but not all. Right. Still being investigated. Exactly. Surely there's a lot of gray area. Very, very much so. When you started talking about aggressive mimicry, the first thing that came to my mind was lures. Yes. Yep. So this is something we see in a lot of predators. Uh, Very famously, things like snapping turtles, Mm -hmm. where they'll have their tongue tip looks like a worm to draw in a fish so it can eat it. But my absolute favorite example is a uh, snake example. Now Will yep, knows why I wanted I to bring it. this yep, up. Yep, yep. Uh, if you are not already familiar, dear listeners, with the spider-tailed viper, it's... look up the spider-tailed viper. No, you should. It's, uh, it's pretty so much... cool. It's a lore. <laughs> yep, and it is pro- possibly the most convincing lore I've ever seen on an animal. Its tail looks like a spider, mm-hmm. so that like birds and stuff will come over to try to catch the bug and then get got yep. by the spider. It's so cool. It's one of those where not only is the behavior awesome and the concept awesome, but just visually, it looks like a D&D snake. It's so, I remember the first, there is one video that I commonly come across online, and it's kind of grainy, which helps <laughs> with the illusion. And I remember the first time I saw it, and it was like, yeah, this video is the spider-tailed viper. And I looked at the video and I went, Where? Is it underneath that spider? Oh! (laughs) (laughs) but behind the spider?
1: Yep. Yeah, it gets real. It's, the (laughs) types of mimicry are not always expected, but also the level of complexity and
0: convincingness can get scary. Well, like, when you think of mimicry and it's so easy to think of it, like, okay, yeah, it's kind of, once you know the difference between, for example, a milk snake and a coral snake, it's like, okay, yeah, I can see the difference. But sometimes, like, the spider-tailed viper or certain leaf mimics mm-hmm. among insects are astonishing in how committed they are. Yes. Like, this this leaf insect has a chunk missing out of it. Yeah, it has leaf rot. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so cool. Well, speaking of truly weird and bizarre
1: mimicry, reproductive mimicry is the last section. <laughs> and this is very, very common among plants. Plants are the ones that really this comes up with. Uh, it is known in others, like certain kinds of cuttlefish will pretend to be females mm-hmm. during mating, which is could potentially be argued for mimicry. But in plants, there are tons of examples where usually flowers mimic other stuff to get pollinators to come and pollinate them. Right. Makes sense. There is Dodsonian mimicry, which is... I am a flower without nectar, and I am mimicking a flower with nectar.
0: Don't have to produce my own nectar, but I still bring all the bugs to the yard yes. to get it. It is. This is very common. Orchids do this a bunch. <laughs>
1: and there are even examples. Uh, the South African orchid will have orange flowers when it's around its orange flower model. And red flowers, when it's around, it's red flower model. Cool. And this is something you see with a lot of mimicry. Uh, there are these millipedes in the Appalachian Mountains that are all toxic. It's Mullerian mimicry. Uh, they have cyanide that they produce because millipedes. Sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all toxic and they mimic each other, but they mimic the ones they are near at the time. Right. So like... In the areas they overlap, those are mimicking each other. But then that same species in another area where they're overlapping with one of the other species, those will be mimicking each other. Right. So the regional variation
0: yes. in your mimicry.
1: You also get weirdos like the carrion flower, which is mimicking a dead body. Yes. That's the corpse flower, <laughs> yeah. which we talked about, Rafflesia. And there are carrion mimics in a bunch of flowers.
0: You know, oh, Allie yeah. talked about a, a orchid that does that as well. Mm-hmm. Episode 125. That's how you get flies. That's how you get flies. I mean, forget vinegar and honey. Death and poop. Yep. That's how you get flies.
1: <laughs> Probably one of the more famous is the pseudocopulation mimicry, where my flower looks like a female insect. Oh, yeah. To get the males to come and attempt to mate with it. And the entire
0: time they're attempting they are being poly- covered in pollen and depositing pollen. Yep, and then they go fly off uh, confused and disappointed and then find another flower yep. like that. see, another pretty female <laughs> that they fly down to. And those flowers
1: will also use similar uh, chemicals to the pheromones of the females. Right, right. So not only do they look and are patterned like the female, but they smell like it too. But my favorite example is an orchid that uses green leaf volatiles to... Attract its pollinators. Now, green leaf volatiles are something that are released from certain plants' leaves when damaged, and they often attract parasitoid wasps, and it is a defense mechanism. Caterpillar chews on leaf, releases these volatiles into the air, parasitoid smells it, comes to where it is, and finds the caterpillar and murders it in a horrible way because they're
0: parasitoids. So the plant is mimicking the damage response of a plant that is being attacked by a caterpillar to lure in the wasps looking for caterpillars. Yes. That's amazing.
1: These are wasp pollinated orchids (laughs) and they do it by tricking them into thinking there is a host nearby. That's
0: so cool. It's it's awesome. Man. (laughs) This is sort of a reproductive mimicry, uh, but I have a snake example. You do? I do, believe it or not. Weird. I think these are the red-sided garter snakes. This may show up in others uh, as well. Will's nodding his head like he knows what I'm talking about. These are snakes that they emerge from their hibernacula uh, when it starts getting warm in the spring, and immediately the males start looking for females to mate with to produce offspring uh, for the spring, and it has been documented that the males will look for females based on sensing the pheromones mm-hmm. but they're just emerging in the spring so the ones who warm up fastest get to move move in quicker and get first shot
1: at mating yeah the once the quicker they warm up the more active they can be in yes. finding the female
0: so it has been documented that certain males will release the same pheromones that the females release to attract males and end up in this mating ball of activity Which warms them up and then they slither away (laughs) to go find a female to mate with. Which is great because that would both be
1: reproductive and auto mimicry. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It gets super weird. And then there are those concepts that are parallel, tangential, around mimicry. Right. Sort of mimicry. Kind of mimicry. These instances where things look like inanimate objects and they're not really getting the benefit. Like... A leaf is not trying to look like a leaf for a benefit. It looks like a leaf to catch sunlight. Right. It's not looking like a leaf to get a certain reaction, typically. So leaf insects are not benefiting from the signals
0: of the leaf... They're benefiting because hopefully no one cares about the leaf. Right. You won't see them because you'll think that they're part of what, in the case of your predators, imagine, is the background. Yeah, you're or you're going to mistake it for something uninteresting. Right, a stick insect, mm-hmm. a leaf insect. It's mimicking the environment. Yes.
1: Effectively. And so, well, and that's that's where it gets interesting because there are a couple of terms that come up. Hmm. Camouflage is when you are trying to go unnoticed. One specific version of it that you'll see very often in discussions of mimicry is Crypsis, which is to blend into the background. Right. You are trying to look like a random sample of the background so that at any moment you can just go unnoticed. But when you look like a stick, you're not necessarily trying to go unnoticed. You're trying to look like a stick. Right. It's, It's even if you are noticed... Yes.
0: ...you will be overlooked.
1: Yes. So... Crypsis is, I don't want you to even notice I'm here. I am just the background. I'm the green screen.
0: And that's like if you think of (laughs) snakes, snakes that (laughs) often have that sort of blotchy pattern that blends in with the leaf litter. I'm breaking up my outline. Yeah, the hope is your eyes will just scan right over them
1: and not even know they're there. But with these, you know, usually insects, stick insects, leaf insects, that are reproducing the shape of a plant, they often have behavior I'm going to move like I'm in the breeze. Yeah. And I'm going to be still during the day and walk around at night. And like, you are trying to do your best impression of that thing. Also, vine snakes. Vine snakes, (laughs) yes.
0: (laughs) They will sway with the trees they're on. This has sometimes
1: been compared to Batesian mimicry, where you are trying to... You have no real defenses of your own. Your defense is that I'm mistaking you for something else. But instead of something dangerous, it's something uninteresting. But because you're not really mimicking the signals of the thing. Right. This is sometimes called masquerade. That masquerading organisms attempt to look like an uninteresting rock twig leaf so that they are not seen as prey. And so sometimes masquerading gets grouped in with mimicry. Other times it is seen as distinct, that it is more in the camouflage camp than it is the mimicry camp. It doesn't seem like there's a definite line. Very, very often when you look up research on mimicry, leaf and, in- and stick insects are going to come up. Mm-hmm. So they are getting included in a lot of scientific research about mimicry.
0: Even if they're sort of on the fringe.
1: Yeah, even if maybe you could argue that it's not technically Batesian mimicry. It's more actually a camouflage. Yeah. You know. This, is, this one kind of hovers around the, the periphery sure, of mimicry. Sure.
0: Well, and I'm glad that we are bringing it up in this episode, because I'm sure a lot of people started this episode thinking, oh, leaf insects and stuff.
1: Absolutely. And I wanted to bring it up because we're going to talk about leaf insects, because now we're
0: going to talk about fossils. Oh, boy. And that's a lot of the examples. <laughs> now, before we get into fossils, there is one animal that I don't know how it fits into your outline here but i if there is any (laughs) animal that people out there are going to be disappointed and when i say people out there i also mean me yep that didn't come up in the episode about mimics it is the animal that is named for being a mimic (laughs) mimic you that's the one (laughs) yeah the mimic octopus that's the one (laughs) so if you are not what like with the viper right if you're not familiar with a mimic octopus even if you are This is your opportunity. Just go YouTube it. Yep. Look up mimic octopus. The mimic octopus is a really fascinating octopus that because octopuses are great
1: at camouflaging into their environment and they have adaptive camouflage. I can be the color and shape and texture even to be. Yes. Mm -hmm. I look and feel hyped front visually. I look like I would feel. I won't because I'm going to be squishy octopus texture
0: when you touch me. A mimic octopus is like a cartoon character. Yeah. That that. They warp themselves into the shape of a variety of different things. If any of
1: you watched the Mighty Ducks cartoon, it's the chameleon of, of the Dragon Bad guys uh, <laughs> that would just change into, like, classical celebrities and comedians that none of us knew because we were little kids and they were all people who had died already. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like that, but of octopus. They just mimic other animals. Yeah. Uh, lionfish, sea
0: snakes, etc.
1: Yeah. And that would be behavioral mimicry or... An adaptive mimicry, so that one's a little different than I've evolved to look like. Yeah. I am pretending actively by choice to be this animal. Yeah, which is all—it's—it's it's interesting.
0: Cool. There is one other example that I want to bring up, just because it's in my brain. It's not a snake; it is a bird. Oh. Forktail drongo, yes, is the species in Africa that has been documented mimicking the distress calls of other animals, Mm -hmm. other birds, even mammals, like I think meerkats. Yep. So you'll have a bunch of birds hanging around and then the Drongo will come over and go, distress call in your language. And then all the birds will fly away, dropping their food that they were eating so the Drongo can go over and steal the food.
1: Yep. And the (laughs) crazy thing is that they have to alternate between legitimate distress calls, warning calls, and fake ones. Because eventually everyone will learn to ignore them. Yes. So they have to give you actual warnings every now and then, and then every (laughs) fifth call, they'll trick you.
0: I read one uh, article at one point. I wrote an episode about SciShow where I wrote about this. And there was one article I came across that said that this species of bird gets something like 25% of their food by tricking other animals into thinking there's danger. And running away and then stealing their food.
1: Which, and as it's like just tricky as it seems, this is technically an aggressive mimicry. Yes. Because you are taking from... It is to their detriment. Exactly. So even things that seem somewhat benign. No one was hurt physically. Right. It is still aggressive because it was not for defense. It was for personal gain at the loss of another. Yep. (laughs) This is one of those episodes where we could just fill it with examples. Oh, yeah. Like, not even ones I
0: had to look up, just off the top of our heads. Yeah. I did not do any research for this episode. Yep. All of my <laughs> examples are just off the top of my head. Because mimicry is just all over the place. It uh, is It is
1: it it is exceedingly common. And since it is so common, we do find it in the fossil record. Uh, we do find examples of mimicry. There are also proposed potential examples of mimicry, you know, things that... People have looked at it and gone, "Mm, that could be mimicry, but it's it's hard to know because we don't know that they were what benefit they were getting from one another necessarily. Right. Uh, So you do lose a lot of the information. We can't guarantee the behavior that was going on. We're not going to know whether it was toxic. Was this trilobite toxic? Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Because there has been suggestions of like mimicry and trilobites. Very similar looking, but not super closely related trial bites that occupy the same habitat and seemingly same part of the environment
0: could potentially be mimicry, but it's hard to know what benefit the mimic was getting. Because we don't know what they were doing. Exactly. In order to really understand mimicry, you have to have a, at least a base level understanding of the model, the mimic and the dupe. Exactly. And that's hard to do. It gets complicated and it can be
1: very easy the more complicated the situation gets to parse out who it all is who. Uh, there was one paper I read that was Who's Mimicking Who? Talking about <laughs> when it's hard to tell who's the actual mimic and who's the model anymore. Yeah. Another <laughs> potential or suggested, I don't think there's been a lot of research support for this, but it came up in at least two different papers, so I'm mentioning it because it's weird, is there was one suggestion in the past that ankylosaur tails might be
0: false head mimics. Yes, I've heard that. So ankylosaurs, episode 69, these are the armored dinosaurs, and the ankylosaur half of the tree has clubs on their tails. Yeah, the big, armored, typically thought to be defensive tail.
1: Right, you swing it and you break a predator's leg or something. Thwack a person. But there have been those who have argued that, in their opinion, the structure doesn't lend itself as ideally to a weapon as you might expect something shaped that way to be, and that it may actually be a false head to make predators think they should attack that end, maybe even mimicking other Ornithischian dinosaur heads or sauropod heads.
0: Yeah, I have heard that. Yep,
1: and that they've even pointed to the fact that the actual head is very squat and close to the shoulders Mm -hmm. and might blend in with the body. So instead of looking like you have two heads... It's, no, no, this
0: is definitely a butt. Right. That's obviously the head. Look at that long, skinny neck. I was going to say, in a world with lots of animals with long necks and small heads. Yep. It's not a bad strategy. (laughs) Now, we should point out that as we discussed in episode 69, the use of ankylosaur tail clubs as defensive weapons is very well supported. Yes.
1: Yeah. No, there's lots of research and not a lot of people are
0: arguing with it from what I've learned. So So, an intriguing thought that it might potentially also act as a distraction. And that's the thing is it could be both. Mm -hmm. It could be,
1: I'm using this to distract you so that you don't attack my face, you attacked my tail, and then I'm going to break your jaw (laughs) when you go for the (laughs) fake head. But... It could also very well just not be true. Yes, no. This is this was suggested. I didn't find any research supporting it, but it was it has been suggested by researchers in the past. Yeah. But then we do get some pretty definitive mimicry fossils. A lot of these are insects in amber. Makes sense. Uh, but there are also sedimentary fossil insects, uh, almost all of which are mimicking. Majority of the examples that I found were mimicking plants. Okay. Yeah. Leaf sticks lichens cool lichen mimics like the the salt and pepper moth that oh, yeah yeah blended into the lichen on trees and then got screwed over by the industrial revolution until it came I, back until it didn't <laughs> <laughs> lichen mimics there are fossil examples of many of these uh there's a, a one of the oldest ones that i found was a katydid which are think kind of like a big cricket yeah. you know big they're, grasshopper they're orthopterans yeah. they're close to grasshoppers this was a permian katydid which is showing leaf mimicry in its four wings that is very similar to today's leaf mimicking katydids. Yeah. There's also examples of stick insects. Uh, a lot of these are from the Mesozoic. Jurassic to Cretaceous mm-hmm. is majority of the examples I found. That's where we get a lot of our amber. Yep. So we've got stick insects, leaf insects uh, going into the Cenozoic. There was one leaf insect front that was only 47 million years old from Germany that I found. And it was identified as male because it had very similar features to males of the same group today. Okay. In that they were looking like leaves the same way, (laughs) which is cool. But I was able to find a couple of examples of insects mimicking insects. Uh, So not just defensive hiding mimicry. A couple which could even potentially be aggressive mimicry, but it's harder to confirm with that. There is one case of Cretaceous true bugs, Hemiptera, which are... The like assassin bugs and stuff today with right. the piercing mouth parts that's what makes them true bugs. And these individuals seem to resemble beetles but still have their true mouth parts. These are in the group called Bursta, uh, there was at least two different species of them, and they still seem to have the piercing predatory mouth part. So, this could be a case of looking like a beetle to get closer to other insects, yeah. Which would make it one of the very rare cases of aggressive mimicry that we have found in the fossil record. That's very cool. Though it still could be defensive that I'm trying to look like a beetle so that I'm not food. You know, I'm trying to look like that beetle for a reason. Mm-hmm. The mouth parts mean you're still eating other people. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a Mesozoic group called the alienopterids, which are in the same group as cockroach, like the overall group as cockroaches, mm-hmm. uh which is Blatodia. These, this is an extinct group. See, they, they aren't around anymore. And they are known for wasp and ant mimicry, taking on wasp and ant physical features. And some show extreme levels of it. Uh, one, which was genus Formicamidax, not only had a ant-shaped body, uh, but also had antennae that were elbowed, which are, means they're bent yeah. like an ant antennae. Characteristic ant shape. Which is characteristic of advanced ants, social ants, and maybe an indication that this was a mimicry not just to look like an ant, but mimic their social, you know, infiltrate
0: or take advantage of their social hierarchy. Yeah, this is another thing that uh, fans of mimicry uh, may be aware of, that mimicking ants is a whole category of mimicry unto itself. Because it is good to look like an ant. Yep. Because A, it can be very beneficial to infiltrate an ant colony, and B, nothing wants to mess with ants. Yeah, that's why there are specialized ant eaters, yep. because ants don't mess around. Yeah, like there are spiders that are ant mimics, because they have predators that would rather mess with a spider yep. than an ant. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Because ants are like New Yorkers. You mess with one of them, you
1: mess yes, with all of yep. them. <laughs> this is often called Mermicomorphy, which I was called out for in an email after doing the... Right, right, right. The spiders episode. <clears throat> you said a thing wrong. I said I said mur- Mermicophrygy, which is ant eating. Uh, right. And I got that word stuck in my head because of the True Facts animal videos <laughs> where he makes fun of that word. But yeah, there's tons of spiders that do this. There are even some spiders that use it aggressively because there's one jumping spider that mimics an ant and feeds on the eggs and young of other jumping spiders, which are known to avoid ants. And so when it approaches their web, they go, oh, an ant, I got to get out of here. And then it just chomps down on their eggs Yeah. and also avoids being eaten because it looks like an ant. So it is both defensive and aggressive at the same time.
0: Cool.
1: And then the final fossil example I found was of a pichodontiform fish from the Jurassic, which is a a distinct group of fish, which are not typically known for having uh, crushing teeth, often interpreted for having a very specialized diet. But there was at least one species that had very different teeth. It had sharp teeth and triangular cutting teeth on the front and sides, respectively, if I remember right. Very reminiscent of piranha teeth. Okay. But still looked very similar to... Uh, The other fish, it just, it looked pretty benign on the outside. And it's been suggested that this may be a form of aggressive mimicry to look like a boring fish and then take chumps and nibbles off of other fish, which there are piranha that do that today.
0: Oh, cool.
1: That I just look super calm and super non-threatening. And then I take a little nibble (laughs) and swim away. And surprise, I'm a piranha. Yep. (laughs) And in fact, some of the fish fossils found in the same deposit have damage to their fins and the fin bases. Oh, cool. (laughs) So, yeah mimics in the fossil record we can't always you know we it's hard to tell when it's batesian for toxic mimicry right right but you definitely get things have been mimicking each
0: other for a long time yeah and, and this is one of those just imagine how much we don't know about yeah because we don't know about toxins we don't know a lot about sounds yeah you know we've talked about how dinosaurs were probably very vocal absolutely in many cases but just imagine the, the sort of vocal mimicry that dinosaurs could have been doing Well, and it's
1: made all the more complicated by the fact that mimicry evolution and our full understanding of how it happens, why it happens, and even just identifying mimicry accurately can be very messy. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about mimicry evolution and some of the trends we see in it after this musical interlude. The evolutionary pressures that bring about mimicry, like the definition, are pretty straightforward on the surface. There needs to be a selective advantage, an evolutionary advantage, for the mimic to look
0: like the model. To copy the signals of the model. Yes.
1: So there must be some benefit, something that increases their survival rate or their success rate somehow this tends to mean at least in you know the typical models you know, Batesian mimicry is very often looked at for evolution that if you have your model and your mimic they both need to be benefiting in very similar ways typically from the signal they're sending right so it has to be something that benefits both of them and if that situation changes if it stops benefiting one of them or if the thing you're duping stops responding to it correctly, that would change up the evolutionary pressures. Effectively, as long as I am gaining benefits from looking like you, I'm going to continue to evolve to stay looking like you. This has been supported in like simulated models where they've made multiple populations, two populations that were senders, sending signals, and they both benefited if the receiver-simulated population responded to the signal in a particular way. So if they got the same response from the receiver, they benefited. Cool. The receiver only benefited if it ate one of the senders. Right. Representing the safe to eat versus the not safe to eat. Right. And when they did these simulations, this was, a I think, a paper in 2008 by Holgrim and in- Inquest, they found that they did evolve mimicry, uh, basically by the mimic just evolving closer to the phenotype of the model, faster than the model was evolving away from that phenotype.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, That it evolved to look like the model fast enough that the model couldn't change. Right, that they're both changing over time, just evolutionary pressure. Yeah. But the mimic is changing faster. There's more pressure. Becoming more and more similar to the other one. Yes. And then once they were similar,
1: as changes happened, they stayed together. Right. The mimic stayed with the model once the mimicry was set. So after that point, they co-evolve. Uh, yeah. Now, I did see some things that would mention there being debate or questions on how much the mimic actually affects the model's evolution. Uh, I couldn't find any definite you know, descriptions or answers as to it, but that there is potential for there to be a side effect. Mm-hmm. Especially if the model is affecting the predator's response to the signal somehow. Right. And now if the predator, you know, if the, if the mimic outnumbers the model, now the predator might start getting less careful and end up killing more of the actual model, even if they do then learn that that was a bad idea. Right. And now the mimic is bad for the model. I didn't see a lot of definites on, or if there's been confirmed evidence that that does happen, but I know that that is something that's debated is how much the model actually responds to mimicry. Interesting. Uh, There's been some that propose that the model really just doesn't react at all. Yeah. That the model doesn't care that there are mimics effectively. If it's a Batesian mimic where the mimic is just benefiting and it's not also toxic. So that the mimic, that the model just continues. Just passive. Keep calm and carry on (laughs) and does not change its phenotype in response to the situation. But I think there is some debate on that. Another source of debate and also just difficulty in studying mimicry evolution is that mimicry can very often be tricky to discern accurately. Sometimes it's that we can tell there's mimicry going on, but we don't know why. Right. We can't figure out what the benefit is, or we may not know who's being duped. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're obviously trying to look like that other, and we can tell like where the benefit might be, but we're not sure who's being tricked. Interesting. Or we might be able to say that you look similar, but we're not sure why you've started mimicking that model. Yeah. What benefit are you getting? And that's just because ecological systems are complicated. And so you just can't always see all the parts to it. Yeah. You know, so sometimes it may be hard to discern whether mimicry is definitely going on or why it's going on or who all is involved. There are also examples where it may be very difficult to tell who's mimicking who. Uh, One example given is hoverflies very, very commonly mimic wasps uh, and other stinging hymenopterans. But in a single area where you could be seeing mimicry go on, there could be hundreds of species of hymenopterans, all of which have similar markings. Which one is the hoverfly mimicking? (laughs) Who's it, it? Did it start mimicking one of them? Is it mimicking multiple of them? Is it just mimicking the
0: general idea of a wasp? Yep. Are those mimicking each other? Is there malarian mimicry happening with them? Right. And then are the flies hopping in and going, "Oh, sure, yeah, any yep. one of these."
1: So, who's? Where are the selective pressures actually happening? Are you being pressured to look
0: like one of these, multiple of these? What's going on? Right. And who are you duping? Is yes. this for protection? Are you trying to avoid the wasps themselves? Mm-hmm. As the system gets bigger, it can get very muddy. I'm sure it's not helped by the fact that it's also entirely possible for multiple species to look f- similar by coincidence. Exactly. Or just convergently. That yes. You, yeah, you had you look that way for a similar purpose, but you don't actually have anything to do with each other. Yep.
1: I saw one example where they called a situation like that pseudomimicry. Cool. Where there are reef fish that look very similar but are not same species. Uh, That's very common among reef fish, and it's very often pointed as sources of mimicry or signs of mimicry because they very often hang out in similar parts and similar roles on the reef, and it's thought that they're trying to benefit from the protection or lifestyle. But, at least in one example, there was research that found that between six different groups of very closely resembling reef fish, that many of them evolved in different oceans originally. With that look. So could not be mimicking each other. That's awesome. And therefore can't really be considered true mimics. Coincidentally, they started looking like each other. And now maybe they're kind of benefiting from it, potentially.
0: Right. So is it, does that count as mimicry if it wasn't on purpose? (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, you could have it be not mimicry and coincidence. And as you're getting at, it could have started as coincidence. Mm -hmm. But now maybe it's really handy to all look even more similar. So which may mean it's not mimicry evolution.
1: It's convergent evolution. Right. But maybe now there's kind of a pseudo mimicry going on. It gets very complicated. And it's partially because generally we can all agree. Yeah. You look like something else to trick something else. Cool. That's an easy definition. Yep. Specific situations get much more complicated. Yep. Like the spider that looks like an ant for both aggressive and defensive mimicry. Can we categorize that in one? Does it get a new category? Nature doesn't like to fit in the boxes we want to put it in. Boy, it sure doesn't. And then I think it gets even better when we do also find convergence in mimicry. Yes, (laughs) like the snakes I mentioned. Yeah, and sometimes it goes even deeper than that. There are heliconius butterflies, well known in the tropics of the Western Hemisphere, that are very often pointed as a key classic example of Malarian mimicry. There are multiple cases of different species within this genus mimicking each other, all of which typically are slightly toxic, slightly uh, uh, noxious tasting, at least. And in at least one case, two species, the Arato and Mopomini species, who have evolved to show the same displays for their mimicry. Genetic research seems that they have found not only similar signals, but the same genetic pathway, the same genetic region to cause those signals. The same genetic regions were used in both species.
0: So it's convergent mimicry. Yes. The same... Ge- That's cool. Yeah,
1: we're mimicking each other the same way. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is also seen in a third species of the group, pneumata, which mimics a different group of butterflies, the melanae, but is also seeming to mimic them with the same group of genes as those other two are mimicking each other. Huh. So it's mimicking a different group, but with the same technique, genetic technique, as these other two. So genetic genetic convergence in how these butterflies are mimicking other butterflies. And while we're on the note of butterflies, I found one paper that documents a potential case of mimicry loss, Ooh. which is quite rare. We don't have a lot of examples of things losing... Evolving away from mimicry. Yeah. The butterfly genus Limenitis, uh, which includes things like the viceroy and the monarch and things like that, often mimic each other, Mullarian mimicry, because they're t- bad tasting, you know, bitter tasting. But one species in the group, Arthemis, or the white admiral butterfly, has a few subspecies, two northern subspecies and two southern subspecies. The southern ones uh, mimic... Another, the toxic pipevine swallowtail butterfly. While the northern subspecies are non-mimics, they don't seem to mimic anyone, they have the typical banded wing coloration. But there is evidence that those northern species had a mimic ancestor, and that this coloration is them having evolved away from the mimicry, potentially back to ancestral coloration before the mimic ancestor.
0: Huh. Yeah. Oh, I guess that makes sense if you know... Like, like, for example, if your model leaves or goes extinct or something... Absolutely. Or you disperse into an area that the model doesn't live, it's no longer beneficial for you to look that way.
1: And it may actually be detrimental. If I'm specifically trying to look one way, and then the thing that makes that worthwhile goes away, I might be conspicuous. Yes, if it's, you're mimicking something mm-hmm. colorful. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, now you're just noticeable with no benefit. And so... The reason you'd lose it is fairly obvious, but it's not something we see very often at all. Yeah, makes sense that it would happen. There are also some examples where we have some decent information on how we think a specific mimicry evolved, like pseudocopulation uh, in flowers that Mm -hmm. mimic the females of insects to attract the males. It seems is likely there's evidence for it evolving from and also back to what's called shelter mimicry where there are flowers specifically shaped and designed to look like ideal shelter for certain insects that are seeking it out, and while they go in there to see like, ooh, is this a good home, they get covered in pollen. Right, right. The human red iris flowers are known to do this, and their pollinators are males of solitary bees that are looking for, I assume, burrows, as solitary bees typically are looking for, places where they can go be a bee without a hive, and they are... These tubular, dark red, nectarless flowers that the bees go into and then get nothing from it. So when they leave, they leave covered in pollen.
0: Huh. So it is a shape, sort of mimicry, like like we were talking about before. It's mimicking a shape.
1: Yeah. It's mimicking an ideal shelter. Yeah.
0: It's something, the idea of something. Yes.
1: But it is something that targets male insects. Yeah. Typically. So there's evidence that that is
0: typically the ancestral state. Right. That is a simple shift mm-hmm. from just a normal flower shape to something a little more specific to attract bees. And now that you are attracting bees, you can make adjustments to that shape. Yep. I can now select a
1: species and look like they're female. Yeah. And there seems to be evidence that they're going both directions, you know, that it can evolve either way from ancestors uh, of pseudocopulation to shelter or vice versa. Another category that gets a lot of research when it comes to mimicry is avian vocal mimicry. Vocal mimicry in birds.
0: Yep. Birds mimicking typically other birds. I'm glad you brought this up because when I said the thing about dinosaurs before, I Mm -hmm. was like, oh man, now I can think of all sorts of birds. I'm not going to do it. Yep. I'm not going to go off on more examples. So yes, please talk about
1: this. Yeah, so (laughs) vocal mimicry in birds is well known. It's very, very common. Uh, There's the famous things like the lyre bird. Right. The drongo I mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, before mimics other birds. And... It's an interesting case of mimicry because often when I found definitions for it they specified that these are cases of mimicry that are learned. Right. The baby is not born knowing that birds that other species of birds call. I grow up and I learn it to then use in the correct situation. Right. Or the beneficial situation of whatever I'm going to use it for.
0: It's not necessarily something that it has evolved. Mm-hmm. It's something uh, individual.
1: Yeah, which stood out to me because every other case of memory that they talked about typically was that I saw talked about was an evolved trait yeah. of the animal. This one, they specified it needs to be something they learn to really count as vocal memory.
0: Right. That is something they are changing their behavior. This is, you know, so often this episode, uh, we are dancing around this pitfall yeah. of talking about evolution as being something with intention. Yes. You know, and it, Yes, evolution does not happen on purpose, but with something like this, it's very easy to say, yes, this evolves on purpose. This evolves for a reason. But in this kind of mimicry, it is much more ascribed to individual intention. Yes, it is. You are actively copying something else. It is a cognizant
1: learning process. Yeah. Which means a lot of discussions about the evolution of it have more to do with the evolution of song learning
0: and Mm -hmm. vocal
1: learning than it does the actual mimicry of it. Uh, And the mimicry is definitely classified, but there are often many cases where it's unclear exactly why they're mimicking. Right. You know, there are examples where it seems like this bird has learned the same warning call for similar, for tricky reasons. But then like the lyrebird's not, doesn't seem to be trying to trick anyone.
0: No, it's just putting together a really fancy song.
1: Yeah, so is that really vocal mimicry or is that just vocal miming, you know, vocal, uh, copying. Right. So is that actually mimicry or are you just mimicking quote unquote that bird song? Cause it's more impressive for you to have a more complex song. Right. Uh, parrots come to mind too. Yeah. And that's one of the proposed origins of vocal mimicry is that vocal learning came about learning songs throughout your life instead of just being born knowing a specific call because there was selection for, it increased song length or repertoire having more songs or complexity that there was a selection for the fancier your song or list of songs the better chances you have during mating season and that that then broke out into not just learning songs from your species but other species
0: well i, I guess that makes sense in terms of thinking of a of an evolutionary benefit uh, and I don't know, I, I don't know anything about this, so I don't know if this would be held up by research, mm-hmm. but it would seem logical to me to hypothesize that hearing and copying a song is a lot faster and more efficient than inventing your own new song. Yeah, Yep. So absolutely. So if you have the ability to just hear another bird song and then do that, that's a much quicker and easier way to make your own song more complex than having to compose it.
1: Well, and that's one of the interesting things in the situation in that with birds that learn their songs, they're all mimicking songs just usually from their own species. That's true. Just from other individuals, adults of their own species. Yeah. The mimicry comes in when you're starting to do it with other people's songs that are not your species song. Yeah. And so the idea here is that maybe there was selection pressure for having complicated songs, a more l- longer list. So you started bringing in other outside species songs and then mimicry started getting used once you had their sounds to trick them with.
0: Yeah. I don't know if this is where you're going with this, <laughs> but I my, I my brain is drawing lots and lots of parallels to humans and language. Yeah. Because that's how we learn language. Absolutely. Uh, in large part is by hearing it and repeating it and mimicking it. And our world languages are constantly borrowing and mimicking yep. from each other.
1: Well, in, in a similar parallel to languages, another hypothesis as to how vocal mimicry might have come about is if you were originally, you evolved for a very specific, to learn a very specific song or list of songs. I only learn these songs. And then over time, the selection pressure on that gets lessened and you get a, more, a little bit more lax. And so you start being able to learn outside songs and incorporate. And so you start incorporating phrases from others and parts of others, and it starts getting to where you have the opportunity to learn because there's not a pressure to not. And so it's just that your pressure lacks, and instead of there being pressure to learn,
0: yeah, you stop
1: having pressure to only learn these songs. All right, well, learn songs. Interesting. And then similar to that, there is the, <laughs> what I, I love the name learning mistakes hypothesis <laughs> that I accidentally learned wrong species song and then used it in random situations. And it turned out to be beneficial. Yeah.
0: I accidentally learned the neighbor's song. Yeah. Well, as a baby. Like when you send your kid to school and they come back having picked up a bunch of nonsense from yep. the other kids at school. Yep. And there's, <laughs> they're suddenly using it. Yeah and then
1: it turns out to be beneficial in a situation which then support starts putting pressure on mimicking that sound. That's pretty cool. Right? Uh so yeah, the parallels with our our language, the one that was about laxing pressure makes me think of slang. Yeah. That Absolutely. Once you once you go outside of formalized language, yeah, you know, slang starts becoming. We start just throwing around terms, shortening terms mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't want to say people. It's peeps. It's I, you know, right. whatever it is. <laughs> That's I use that in my text all the time because I don't want to text people. Peeps. Peeps. <laughs> so, yeah, vocal learning in birds as it compares to vocal mimicry is a really complex and very, very studied topic in mimicry evolution. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. And then since it was mentioned and since there is a research on it, it shows up in the literature quite often. Uh, the evolution of masquerade is often discussed as well. Okay. How do things become to look like a stick or a leaf or a rock or a poop? Because there's lots of things that do that too. Birds that look like, or spires that look like bird poop.
0: Yeah, or caterpillars do
1: that a lot. It is definite that this evolves separately, even in related groups. Oh Uh, yeah. That this is... This is
0: convergent
1: all over the place. All over the place, even in very closely related taxa, still... It is showing up several times independently and generally agreed that most likely most of them had cryptic crypsis ancestors. Right. You were meant to just kind of blend in with the foliage, you know, be
0: green. Right. And then you started taking the shape of a leaf. Right. And maybe you got some vein-like mm-hmm. patterns that were beneficial. It, it. That's the kind of thing where it's very easy to imagine how you can just... Well, because every step along, like, even looking a little bit like a leaf is beneficial. Yeah. So every little bit extra you look like a leaf is going to potentially be handy.
1: Yep. And so that it could, you know, just step-by-step mutations that make you a little bit more specific than general in your camouflage to where eventually you are mimicking something. Right. Though it has been pointed out that you could very easily ruin your camouflage uh, with... mutation because a leaf insect only blends in on among leaves and sometimes only among specific leaves yeah so you could you have ruined your Crypsis in a way you don't blend in with the general background anymore and so there is kind of a um oh what is it what i'm thinking of there is kind of a duality in the evolution that the more you look like a leaf and the more specific the better your disguise of
0: as a leaf will be but also the less you look like just the background noise. Right. If you're just hanging out on a tr- on the trunk of a tree. Yeah. That that's not a good place for you to look like a nice healthy leaf. Well, it's like whenever you see a sticking set that's fallen down. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, on the dirt. Yeah, that's a sticking set. There's a stick even if it's not moving, it's standing up. Well, it also would uh, make sense to me because you mentioned mutation. That if your whole thing is that you just look green, mm-hmm. then a weird deformity that kind of makes your shape a little weird isn't really going to make a difference. Yeah. But if you're supposed to look like a leaf and you have a weird deformity, that makes it obvious that you're not a leaf. Yep. That can be really uh, detrimental.
1: And so the the exact pressures that go on and how intense they can be is something that's it seems is still being discussed, but also makes sense that they would be very particular to drive such specific... because. Masqueraded insects, leaf and stick insects, are just ridiculous, as you mentioned. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. Once again, Google it. Yeah. As they would say in a lot of the research papers, their mimetic fidelity is incredibly high. I love that. (laughs) This is that their true resemblance to their model is real good. Mimetic fidelity off the charts. Yes. (laughs) Now, I introduced that term because the next topic is imperfect mimicry. Oh. Which is a hotly debated issue. I bet. In mimicry. So we've talked about a lot of really cool disturbingly convincing mimics. Yeah. That's just like, it's it's kind of creepy that you were not designed. <laughs> that, you, <laughs> that you evolved to look that much like a leaf that, or a spider on your tail. That
0: this isn't something somebody made up.
1: Yep. Nope. That happened. But, among all those mimics, there are lots of not so great mimics. There are a lot of mimics out there that you'd look at. And it's like, look, I'm a bumblebee. No, you're not. Yeah, you're sure trying. <laughs> you're, you're wearing m- bumblebee cosplay at best. <laughs> uh, and not good high end cosplay. <laughs> like that's off the shelf, like off the rack. And this is kind of an issue in the theory of mimicry. Uh, they're often called poor mimics mm-hmm. to go back to one of our previous examples Coral snake mimics, whilst matching the
0: bands and often the colors very well, they're typically out of order. Yeah, they're often in a different order or sometimes they're missing a color. Uh, A lot of the milk snakes, scarlet snakes, false coral snakes, etc., etc. Often have these weird different... Like I said before, once you know what to look for... It's actually really easy. Yeah, you can see the differences.
1: And that seems counterintuitive... The typical perspective is that a mimic would always be selectively, evolutionary, evolutionarily pressured to look more and more like its model, yeah. to be a more and more convincing false. You should look identical. Yeah. Like, what better fake than almost the real thing? So why would you stop halfway? Mm-hmm. You know, why would you not correct the order of the stripes? Right. And there are a lot of ideas. I can think of a few. Yep. This is one of those situations where the issue is trying to figure out not does it happen, but why is this allowed Mm -hmm. (laughs) selectively? Why is this so common? Why does it seem to be all right? What might be going on? One of the first big ones that people will often point out is that we are making this perception off of our measurement of how good the mimicry is. It is a human's opinion of how convincing that hoverfly is as a wasp,
0: and we are both very—we are very good at pattern recognition. Yeah, we are very perceptive, and we have great vision. And we're not the predators. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, these are qualities of us. Yeah, like that we... are not true of a lot of other animals. And they might have things we don't. The predator might see something in the
1: mimic that we're not seeing. That's true. The UV or whatever. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we're taking it from a human perception, but they're not mimicking for a human perception. Uh, So there's been debates as to whether can we really be trusted to rank mimetic fidelity? Right. Can I actually rank a a mimic and it be taken seriously? Right. Uh, There is research that suggests yes, when human rankings were compared to bird responses based off of... a a multivariate analysis of how they responded to various mimics, it seemed to be similar. That we seemed to rank things to a similar category as the reactions seen in birds. So at least in some research, comparing us to birds, our opinions of mimics could be viable. Okay. But that is one issue. And if if that issue is... True, then it might mean that there aren't really imperfect mimics. We're just judgy. Like
0: we're imperfect.
1: Yeah, we are calling that imperfect, but it's it's fine.
0: No, it is the animals who
1: are wrong. Yes, <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> but if our
1: rankings and our, our opinions are to be taken seriously, and there are imperfect mimics, mm-hmm. there's a number of hypotheses as to why. First and most simplest, uh, mimicry might be costly. Yeah. It might be real evolutionarily expensive to evolve good mimicry so budget mimicry might have to make do at times right good enough yeah good enough another idea is that you don't need to be a really good mimic if the model you're model you're mimicking is especially toxic anything that even is in the category of a poison dart frog i'm not touching right that's close enough for me i'm not going near it
0: (laughs) exactly it's like listen i know you're only wearing a red shirt but I'm not going to risk it. Right. Well, and that's like what we tell people is, yeah, if you don't know whether it's a venomous snake or not, don't bother. Yes. Just don't go near it. Don't go near it because A, if
1: you're not an expert, it's not worth the risk. And B, the snake doesn't want you to go near it anyway. Yes. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> for both your benefits, leave it alone. There's also the idea that this these may be cases of finding a middle ground between mimicry and camouflage. Okay. That may be... If you're not wanting to go all in on mimicking, you might want
0: to be a little more subtle in your mimicry so you can still hide most of the time. Once you are noticed, I want to hide most of the time, but if you notice me, I want to look enough like the other thing. It's like, oh,
1: now that you've seen me, I'm a wasp.
0: Yeah, I'm covering my bases. Exactly. I'm going to try to get it at every level.
1: Well, and the, the issue with a lot of mimics is that for many of them, their only defense is the mimicry. Yes. The lie is their only defense. The actual stink bug has its patterning and its stink. Yes. But if I only look like a stink bug as soon as you call my bluff, you die. That's the end of my story. (laughs) So I might want to hide to add an extra layer of defense. But typically, most researchers seem to lean toward that imperfect mimicry happens when selection pressures are relaxed. When for some reason, there's not a big pressure for you to be a good mimic... And there's a couple of scenarios that are typically brought up. There has been some support for the idea that small bodied mimics might not need to be as precise as larger bodied mimics because they're targeted less. Okay. Predators go for the larger bodies either because the smaller ones are harder and more easily to miss or they're just not as enticing as food. Mm -hmm. And so there has been some correlation found in certain insects that the smaller uh, uh, sized mimics tend to have less fidelity, less accuracy to their model, but not a ton of support from what it sounded like. The paper I found, yeah. it seemed to find a little bit of support in one group and not a lot of support in another group. So that may or may not be true of many mimics. Community diversity is also something that has been found to have some strong correlation with certain mimics that if I'm a mimic in a community, in a environment, Full of models, then it might be beneficial, as you were saying earlier with the wasps and the hoverfly, to look like five of them. Right. Roughly.
0: Like a, a little bit like a lot of them. Yep. Yeah.
1: Both because I might be mimicking multiple ones, but also if these stinging insects are very common
0: in my environment, then predators are much more used to that signal. Right. And you might have a predator that specializes on one of those species. Mm-hmm. So if you look a little bit like that other species too you might be able to avoid them. Exactly.
1: So yeah, you're just, once again, covering your bases, but you're taking a wider sampling of your models. And then the final idea, which is one of my favorites, because it's just a neat concept, is that it may be that it messes with predator perception. That if you don't quite look right, it might take them a second
0: to figure out what you (laughs) (laughs) are. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me think of the two heads idea yeah. that we were talking about before. But yeah. If they have to stop and think about it, that might be enough time for you to get away. Exactly. That it may just be that it's enough
1: mm-hmm. to trip up the predator or that it's enough that at a distance it might keep predators from coming closer. Right. The There was one that was called true ambiguity, which was that idea that The signals, the coloration is somewhat recognizable, but the signal isn't quite right. So the predator struggles to either match you to what signal it's supposed to respond to. Like, is this a toxic signal? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And in that pause, you're able to get away. Or that it sees a signal and it goes, all right, but
0: what does that mean? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like when you're, it makes me think of when you're driving down a road and you're the only car and you see a light that's like a blinking green or something. And you're like, hang on, I know what blinking means. And I know what green means. Is that just a broken light? Yep. Does this mean something? Yep. Like what, what, how, what am
1: I supposed to do here? (laughs) Because that's what signals are meant to do. They're meant to elicit a response. Yep. What response am I supposed to? And that in that moment of, huh? you can scurry away. Right. So it may just be that it's enough to trip you up. This was also found to be the case with coral snake mimics that even though the banding's often out of order and the coloration's not perfect, it's good enough, especially at a distance. And because when we think of a mimic, we are thinking of a picture in a book. Right. But in truth, you usually only get to see part of the snake. Right. I can't see the full thing. I just see a, it's definitely
0: a snake and there's red and there's black and there's yellow. And... The speed the dangerous species itself will have variation, yes, which is also a thing that comes up with humans. Mm-hmm. That's why, with coral snakes, the red and yellow, black and yellow, the, the po the famous poems, yeah, right, red touches black, etc., etc., is not recommended for wide use because that's only true, generally speaking, in certain places, yeah, like here where we are, that'll do you well, <laughs> right? But, but like, yeah, if you go traveling a ways. Or if someone's, like, captive has gotten (laughs) out or something. Yeah, there's variation in the dangerous species. So it may just be that enough of a
1: warning, because the predator can't always get a good look, Mm -hmm. is also enough to make
0: it pause or just decide, ah, next one. Well, when you brought up imperfect mimicry, my first thoughts, and I haven't done any looking into the background of this, but Mm -hmm. my first few thoughts were, A... It may just be that you're genetically limited. Yep. That you can't change the order of your stripes just because that's too big a change. Yes. So you're stuck with what you got. Two, and this was this is always my my first assumption, is that it messes with species recognition. Yeah, that's that a good point. If you look too much like another species, then your own species will have trouble recognizing you and finding mates. And in, this isn't the case in like the examples of poisonous animals, but- In certain cases, the last thing you want to do is go looking for a mate and accidentally go up to the dangerous species. Yeah, exactly. So, like, if you look too similar, then maybe your own species won't recognize you. But then my other thought is, couldn't it be that some of the seemingly imperfect mimics are just on the way? Yeah, and that's a thought I had. It's not the end point. Yeah, exactly. That
1: we might be in the process of evolving... True mimicry, you
0: know, perfect mimicry, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, which has got to start somewhere. You have to start by looking mm-hmm. kind of similar and then maybe be selected to look better and better and better. Which I didn't see
1: mentioned in any of the papers, and I'm not sure why. Hmm. I didn't is, see it mentioned is that a faulty, yay or nay.
0: Yeah, is that a faulty assumption on our part for mm-hmm. some reason? Is it? Is it that we're mistaking, you know,
1: the process or is it the... Typical issue of thinking that things are the things the way they are now is the way they have gotten to. Right. You know, that we're at the end game because this is what's happening now. Yeah. I didn't see that discussed really, but it was the same thought I had is unless we have a evolutionary history to back up. Right. That they've been imperfect for thousands, millions of years. Yeah. Could we not just be seeing the beginning of it?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure I know you can do genetic studies to look for signs of selection. Mm -hmm. And it could be that you don't find signals of strong selection uh, that would indicate that, yeah, maybe we have plateaued. Yeah. uh, uh, In this regard. And, And the truth of it is that
1: each example of an imperfect mimic probably could fall under a different one of these umbrellas. Absolutely. That there's probably somewhere that's good enough. The predator they're tricking is particularly easy to dupe. Yep. They're real dupy. Yeah. They just don't see that well. They just, they're not, you don't have to try that hard. Yep. <laughs> and then another one where it's, oh,
0: I'm working toward it. Yeah, Give I'm me some there. time. And Jeez. Then, and then another one where it's, yeah, well, we, we, you, some of us got really good at it, but then we were getting confused during mating. Yep. So we scaled it back a little bit. And then there are almost certainly examples where it's like, well, yeah, to you humans,
1: yes, it doesn't look good, but you can't—you can't even see UV, or you're not smelling them, right? And they smell exactly the same, (laughs) you know. So it is a hotly discussed. You know, I'm not sure how much there's debating because I I don't know a lot of mimicry evolutionary scientists,
0: but surely discussed. It
1: is definitely discussed. Uh, Many of the papers talked about the fact that it is still a contentious issue in how we fit it into our
0: understanding of mimicry. Very cool. So yeah, this is a big subject. Oh, it's so big. And we can come back to topics like this over and over again. Happily. Happily.
1: (laughs) So as you, if we did not get to your favorite example of mimicry, please share what's your favorite type of mimic
0: please tell us just which one did we not mention
1: let's cover all the social media with just cool examples of mimicry
0: <laughs> include pictures and gifts if
1: you can yes well before we wrap up this episode here at the end we often like to include a patron question because if you are one of our patrons at a certain level you can submit questions to us which we will answer on episode and we have one of those here
0: today david well, since we talked about uh, convergent evolution a number of times this episode, we've got a patron question about convergent evolution. This one's from Jackie, who says, I know you've talked about convergent evolution happening with aquatic animals and cave organisms, but are there traits that are frequently convergently evolved for mountain living animals? Good question. Very and good question.
1: Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, of course. There's a lot of traits that we see in uh, alpine mountain top organisms a lot of them extremely similar
0: to arctic and antarctic yeah episode 114 polar living things yeah
1: because it's cold when you go up high you get cold and you also start dealing with sparsity in precipitation and uh, resources a lot of plants have trouble growing that high up because you're getting onto the rocky top of the mountain
0: where you get what's called the tree line
1: yep And both due to the temperature, uh, winds also get pretty intense, so that can affect what can survive. So you end up having cold temperatures and lowered resources, so you see a lot of the same thick coats and adaptations for that. A lot of the plants grow in a very similar way Mm -hmm. to uh, tundra-esque plants.
0: You're going to get changes in sort of uh, yearly cycles of behavior. uh, Long hibernations
1: for a lot of Mm -hmm. mountain animals. You also get specializations for maximizing energy usage. I, I saw one, one example that was saying that that's one of the reasons mountain goats can eat basically any plant material is so that they're not going to have to roam to go find plants and they can make use of whatever plants they come across. That makes sense. So they it makes them more efficient. Whatever's in front of me, I can eat and there will be something I can eat within a short distance. And so a lot of the things that make it good for cold weather... And then also things that make you good at climbing. Yes. And being up high. So you see lots of adaptations
0: for rock climbing and and traction. You think about mountain goats and also cats. Cats. That live in mountains that tend to have uh, very good, oftentimes their feet and legs, the way that they're shaped, the way that they mm-hmm. work, are good for gripping surfaces, getting traction.
1: There's the famous uh, uh, Ibex, which has like specialized hooves with pads that let it, Kind of almost suction cup to the rocks, you know, mm-hmm. grip the rocks really effectively. Uh, this is where all those memes of goats climbing uh, water dams, yep, <laughs> river dams, because it is technically not straight up and down. There is an incline, so they can climb it. Yep, because if you're gonna be climbing where there are just sheer cliffs every now and then, mm-hmm. probably good to be able to get up and down them. And then the other thing you'll see, uh, this is the one thing that's truly unique to mountains is high elevation which typically means low oxygen yeah thinner atmosphere so you do see adaptations for thinner atmospheres uh, I know that there's been genetic studies into Tibetans
0: yep I was just gonna say humans yep humans in Tibet and, and other places. Uh, there are a few high elevation the Andes yeah there are populations there where we have people who ha- whose bodies are physiologically better. At dealing with the cold, at dealing with yeah. low oxygen levels. That they
1: they are more efficient, if I remember right of
0: utilizing what oxygen is there. Yes. And their blood is better at it. And there is also, I have seen some research in passing, I don't have a lot of details, I'm pretty sure we've mentioned this before, that also the dogs yes. that live in those places <laughs> have also evolved these same features. Uh,
1: <laughs> human dog co-evolution is one of my favorite so topics. So cool. Uh, I also saw that, like, Himalayan yaks have larger hearts and lungs and stuff like that. So you'll see just, I'm going to be better at pumping blood and taking in air just since there's less of it (laughs) up here. So, yeah, you do see a lot of adaptations for mountains. I mean, and there's also animals that are kind of pre adapt Birds do real well in mountains. I was going to (laughs) say, lots of birds. Yep. Because... (laughs) You don't need to be good to climb when gravity is less of an issue for you.
0: And I would imagine that nesting strategies up on mountains are nice because there's fewer predators up there. Yeah. Well, and I know,
1: and I, I feel like I've heard that this is actually uh, contentious, uh, but that the whole idea of the the egg shapes to avoid rolling mm-hmm. for rocky nesting on yeah. cliffs and stuff I think like we that.
0: We talked about that in the yeah. eggs
1: episode. And that it seems like there are actually may be other reasons that they're that shape right that has more to do with the kind of bird you are yes uh than yeah, yeah. the way you nest 92 yeah but i do think there are still trends in high
0: elevation eggs but i'm not i don't know what they are or maybe no. that was a news yeah i think that it was a news. a news so yeah absolutely there are convergent adaptations for mountains maybe we'll do that episode someday happily you do mountains all right sure <laughs> listen i'll do it hey speaking of uh episodes we might do let us know what other episodes you want to hear Yes, we
1: do episodes every fortnight, and if we, if there is a topic you want to hear us talk about, you can send it to us via mail, email, social media,
0: all the typical ways. All the ways. Hey, we recently wrapped up Spooky, if mm-hmm. you haven't checked that out. Hey, if you're a patron, we did a live stream and we're going to do more of them. Hey, we've got our Q&A coming up. The form's coming out real soon after this episode goes out. So keep your eye out for the Q&A form. It's a busy time of the year. We've got a lot happening. So
1: tune in, let us know your thoughts, share your favorite mimics, tell us the episode you want to hear us talk about. Thank you to those who requested this episode and to our new patrons. Check back in with us in a fortnight for the next episode. We'll do this episode again. Again, but with less effort, right? Uh, Imperfectly, yes. But, but hopefully we'll get clicks because our audience won't know the difference. <laughs> or with more toxicity? Uh, should that be the toxic? There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have lots more toxic toxic masculinity. We can just be
0: real aggressive. It'll be real, yeah. It'll be aggressive mimicry. <sighs> uh, well, bye. bye. <laughs>